It's always bad when God's word gets in the way. Matthew 15. Let's pray. Let's we'll pray. Lord, just good to be here. I pray that we could just learn and grow in you, and Lord, just not grow in knowledge, but Lord, to take what we have learned and go apply it to our lives to be a difference maker in where we work, where we live, and what we do, and how we act. Go before this teaching, prepare our hearts for what you have to say, and to live it and always say in you. Thank you for the time to meet here, and Lord, all these outreaches going on at Deschler, Henry County Fair, the prayer group, can mean nothing without you. We never want to get the church spinning as it does what we want to be for you and your glory. The same with the uh, back to school giver. Blessing on that. Thank you for the time and opportunity to meet in your name. Amen. Matthew 15, continue our study of the book of Matthew. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to grab a copy of it. We talk about the heart, how God does not want your outward obedience, God does not want your outward righteousness, He does not want your outward giving, your outward fasting, your outward prayer. He wants your heart. And we have a message to really stop and say, the heart really focused on that. Because we can all fake it. We can fake it while we're at church. We can fake it at home for a while. We can fake it at work. But Christ says, I want that real relationship with you. How is the heart? And what we see here this morning is this continual idea of God working on our hearts. Now, there's a lot of repetition here this morning, the stuff that we've covered in the previous chapters. And the reason we're repeating it again, very similar, a little bit different detail, is because God is building up to a point which we're going to get to at the end. So as we go through this, some of the stuff is going to say, well, haven't I heard this story before, just a few chapters earlier? It's very similar, which is the details changed a little bit, and you'll see why as we get to that. So Matthew 15, starting in verse 21, says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can see how Tyre and Sidon are kind of along the coast there in the Mediterranean. So Jesus is getting quite the distance from Jerusalem at this point. So he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon, in verse 22, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I have not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, a couple things here first. You have to understand the background of this woman. She has a lot against her. She's from the wrong hometown. Tyre and Sidon, that is not the area she should be from, so she's from the wrong hometown. She's the wrong race. She's a Canaanite. In Mark's Gospel, also, she was part Greek. So she's from the wrong hometown, she's the wrong race, and 2,000 years ago, according to most Jewish men, she's the wrong sex. So the wrong hometown, the wrong race, the wrong sex, this woman should not even be speaking to Jesus. Jesus is a good Jewish man, would not even look at her, not even acknowledge her, not even spend time with her. But yet he still ministers to her. Now you may stop and say, well, he does ignore her at first. Look at this, verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, the son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. This woman comes, she says all the right things. This is, this is a great phrase, son of David. If you go look this up, this phrase is used continually throughout the Gospels. It's a way to acknowledge Jesus. He's the son of David, meaning he is going to be the king. He's one of David's heirs. 
It's a sign of his Jewishness, that he's the Jewish Messiah. This phrase, son of David, is very, very powerful. So when she uses this phrase, how come in verse 23, he answered her not a word? She said all the right stuff. She did all the right things. The problem is, she can't acknowledge Christ as the son of David. She's not Jewish. She's coming at this the whole wrong way. She thinks she's saying what's right. She thinks she's doing what's right. And this should open the door. Son of David, I know what's right. Problem is you're the wrong hometown, the wrong race, the wrong sex, the wrong everything. Now we'll stop there for a quick moment. Because we know Jesus is not being rude. If he's ignoring, why is he ignoring her? You ever had a moment in your spiritual life where you feel like the prayers are just completely unanswered? You just feel like everything you say is not being heard, and it is just completely unanswered. May I ask you this? How are you addressing the Lord? Now, don't turn this into some type of legalistic message if you've got to say the right words in the same way. I'm not saying that in any way whatsoever. I'm saying, how are you approaching him? How are you approaching him? I've had people come up to me before and talk to me about their prayer life. I'm praying about things and nothing's changing. Everything stays the same. Okay, what are you praying about? Well, I tell God all the time I need a new job and he needs to give me one. Okay, that's not really going to blow over real well. The slave doesn't tell the master what to do. Well, I tell God all the time that you need to change my husband so I can't live with him anymore. It doesn't work that way. That's probably why your prayers are not being answered the way you think. Because you're not looking at his prayer. You're looking at his, I'm telling God what to do. I'm treating him like Santa Claus. I'm treating him like the genie in the bottle. And Lord, you need to do this. No. Lord, give me joy in the job that I have right now. Lord, it's very difficult. Help me to have unconditional love for these people I work with. Lord, thank you for at least a job. Lord, in my flesh, in my wisdom, I would sure like something different. If you could provide something, I would appreciate that. But Lord, I trust your perfect will in this job. Lord, my husband is difficult. Help me to love him like you love him. Lord, help me to see him through the eyes of Jesus. Lord, help me to see my wife through the eyes of Jesus. Lord, help me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And by the way, tell him what to do. You know, I mean, that's... But that's kind of what she's doing. She's saying that's right. But the problem is she's coming about it the wrong way. She can't address him in this type of Jewish mentality. So he answers her not a word. Verse 23. And what does the disciples do? The disciples do what we like to do. I call it change the channel. We don't want to deal with her right now. Send her away. We've used this example many times before. You're watching TV and the infomercial comes on about the children that need help or the individual or the ministry that needs help. And it just hits you. You don't want to deal with it. Change the channel. There's the person standing right there at the intersection. You're hoping you get a green light so you don't have to have a red light while you're stopped at that person holding a sign saying, we'll work for food. It's the co-worker that when you see, you purposely go the opposite direction because you don't want to deal with it. It's the person at church that you see that you go opposite direction. Lord, send her away for she cries out after us. Now, moms, how ferocious would you be if your daughter was demon-possessed and you saw Jesus had the answer to heal her? You would go into mama bear mode. She's crying out. Now finally he responds to her. Verse 24. He doesn't really respond to her. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's quite a theological statement. What Jesus is saying is this. I was sent to minister to Israel. I was sent to minister to the Jews. That's what I'm sent to minister to. Now, we know from a biblical standpoint the Gentiles are having a chance of salvation that's coming. But at this point right here, my ministry is to the Jews. You are the wrong hometown. You are the wrong race. You are the wrong sex. Not right now. 
In verse 25, when she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. You've got to love simple prayers in the Bible. Lord, help me. Keep it simple. Lord, help me. Now he responds. Now remember, he's not ignoring her because he's angry or upset. This is a testing teaching process. He is teaching the disciples the ministry aspect here of loving everybody. He is teaching this gal. He's taking her deeper in her relationship with Christ. Because she starts out by just saying, well, these are the magic words, verse 22, son of David. All of a sudden, it's like, no, now, Lord, help me as she worships him. He was purposely dragging this out, not to be mean, but to take this woman to where she needs to be and to also teach his disciples something. So now look, verse 26, he responds to her. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now you need a little bit of background here of uh, Judaism. One of the biggest insults you could call somebody is a dog. That's just one of the biggest insults you can call them. So by here calling her a little dog, that sounds insulting. But you've got to know the wording. This word for little dog in verse 26 in the original language is not the dog that you would think of as an insult, like a scavenger. It literally means, don't throw it to the cute little puppies. That's what he's calling her. It's the cute little puppy. And so what he's saying in verse 26 is, listen, I can't take the bread, the gospel message, but it's supposed to be for the children of Israel. Then give it to the Gentile yet. That's what he's saying. And she said, yes, Lord, that even the little dogs, the little puppies eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She's saying, listen, I understand this, but I just want something. Just give me a little crumb. And I love verse 28. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. That phrase for woman, it's actually a compliment. It's a very respectful term in the original language. Now, today, if I go up to somebody and say, woman, that would not come across in any way whatsoever. Good. When Jesus is saying woman right there in verse 28 is a term of respect, it's done sincerely, it's done politely. He goes from at the beginning of this message to completely ignoring her, to by the end treating her with respect and calling her woman. Why? Did he change his mind? No. But he took her from where she was to where she needed to be. He took her from just saying the right words, to no, it's not the words, lady to an idea of faith and humility of serving Jesus, and also his disciples saw this. This was a test, this was a teaching point to get her to where she needs to be, and this woman is a wonderful example of faith and humility. She had faith, she had a humbleness. It's amazing what God can do with a humble heart and a heart of faith, it is. I've seen people that have amazing wisdom, knowledge, guidance, direction. They can teach. They can do anything. But they don't have the humbleness to be used by the Lord. They're great. And the problem is they know they're great. There has to be a heart of humbleness. I've seen people that have the same thing. The wisdom, the guidance, the direction. And you sit there and you say, this person could really be used by the Lord. or really be a difference maker. The problem is they don't have the heart of faith. God, you know, God can't use me, or I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. And they sit there in this powerless state because you're not walking in faith. <coughs> so this woman having both faith and a humble heart, what a great combination. She's willing to humble herself, come to Christ. She's the wrong hometown, the wrong race, the wrong sex, but Jesus says, I still want to minister to you. And he takes her to where she needs to be. And she had the faith to trust and believe that the Lord is moving and working. What a great example she is personally of the Lord working with her testing her, moving her through this. And you can probably relate to this in your own life. There's times where you feel like you start out and Lord, where are you? But as time goes on, it's like, yeah, I'm going deeper and I start to understand more. Going from not worrying about what words to say, but just to Lord help me. 
and worshiping. And you get it. So let's build on this. Verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on a mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitudes marveled when they saw the meat speaking, the man made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. It's really easy at this point just to kind of look at these verses and just say, okay, pretty simple, there is healing people, amen. Break this down a little bit. He went up on a mountain, verse 29. Why did Jesus go up on a mountain? He wanted to get away from everybody. We know from studying this out in the other gospel accounts, he went up to be alone. Now, what happens that every time Jesus wants to be alone in the Bible? If you look at verse 30, there's a word that begins with an M. Multitudes show up. Jesus is always trying to get away in the New Testament. He just wants to spend time in prayer. And he just wants to be refreshed. He wants to spend time with the Father. But the multitudes show up. Now, when the multitudes show up, what does the disciples always tell them to do? Send them away. Isn't that great ministry? Multitudes show up, no, send them away. We don't want to minister to them. Jesus, no matter what he's doing, will sit and minister to them. If you remember in John 4, the great story of the woman at the well that Jesus has this wonderful time sharing Christ with, what happened? The Bible says that he was tired and wanted to sit down and rest. <clears throat> Opportunity came to minister. Jesus here is going up on a mountain according to the other gospel accounts. He wants to be getting away. The multitudes follow him. Now, let's talk about the multitudes here for a little bit. You know Jesus is there. You know what Christ can do. You've heard the stories. So you have, in verse 30, the blind, lame, mute, maimed, and many others. And you just need to get them to Jesus and they'll heal them. He's up on a mountain, though. Think about that for a second. So maybe you have a loved one that is maimed. You have a loved one that cannot walk. And so what are you going to do? We're going to get your friends together, and you're going to take this six-foot, 200-pound-plus man, and you're going to carry him up a mountain to Jesus Christ. Why? Because you know that's where he's at. That's a work. That's a lot of work. Now, if you weren't with us Wednesday, we started something new this Wednesday. We started talking about works. i got to stop here for a second, because when you bring up works, people can take this the wrong way. Now, we're not talking about works that save you. We're not talking about works to try to get you saved, works to keep you saved, or works for you to show off to everybody how great you are in Jesus. No, no, no. If you remember correctly, you're in the of Ephesians 2.10, that God has created you in workmanship, and he's created you for good works. And in Titus 3.8, we talk about how God wants you to maintain good works. And what we're now doing on Wednesday nights is we're going to talk about practical Christianity. Because we talk about this all the time. Go out there, be a light and a witness, you know, produce fruit for people, represent Jesus Christ. Okay, that sounds great. But what does that look like on a day-in, day-out basis? That's what we're going to start talking about on Wednesday nights. Because part of your Christian walk is works. Let me repeat again, not works to save you, not works to keep you saved, not works for you to show off, not works to do any of that. But it's saying, I am now born again in Christ, I am empowered by the Holy Spirit, and He has created me to do good works. He wants me to maintain good works. Hebrews 10.24 says I'm supposed to encourage you to do good works. Some translations say I'm supposed to provoke you to do good works. I'm supposed to poke you a little bit and say, go out there for the right reasons and the right motives. So when I see right here Jesus up on the mountain, and I envision these people carrying up the maimed and the lame, Sometimes it's a picture of work. It is in ministry. Ministry is not for the faint-hearted, and ministry is not for the thin-skinned. And you may say, that's why I'm not a minister. And you know what I'm going to say. The Bible says every one of us is a minister. 
Because ministry just means to serve. We're all called to minister in some way or another. So Jesus here wants to get away. He's tired. The multitudes come, and what does he say? I will put my life on hold and minister to them. What an example of servanthood. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize I have no free time. There is no free time. I used to look at his free time. This is my time. I, I, I've done what I needed to do at church. I've taken care of this. So this is now my time. The more I study this out as a bond servant, a willful servant to Jesus Christ, I've willfully given up my life to serve him and love him. I don't have free time. It's all the Lord's time. And whatever the Lord wants me to do at that moment, at that time, I need to be willing and available to do it, be in season and out of season. It's when I think I have free time that then I start to get annoyed when the multitudes show up. No, it's all yours, Lord. Does that mean there's not a Sabbath rest? No, there's a Sabbath rest. Does that mean there's not a time to get away with family, vacation, etc.? I heard a great teaching one time that talked about how the seventh-year rest is a good example of vacation. Getting away, let the work go. But you got to remember, quote-unquote, free time, Sabbath days, rest, vacation. It's not a time to get away from Jesus and ministry. It's a time to be refreshed in Christ. Because during your vacation, your free time, the Lord may say, I need you to go minister to that person. I want you to go minister to that person. Be available. Jesus right here is showing us, showing us the example. Yet you're up on the mountain. Yet the multitudes are coming. What do you do? You love them. You just love them. Which then takes us to our final point here. We're going to bring all this together, verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where can we get enough of bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, beside women and children, so you're talking maybe 10,000, 15,000 people again. Verse 39, and he sent away the multitudes, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdalene. Now, we just did the feeding of the 5,000 a couple weeks ago. Same idea. Jesus is ministering, the multitudes show up, they don't have any food, he has compassion on them, he says, disciples, how are we going to feed them? The disciples say, we don't know. Jesus says, figure it out, but he does this amazing miracle, everybody gets fed, and he says, everybody's filled, go home now. It, it's almost the same thing. Well, the one was 5,000, the one's 4,000, there's a few little details here and there again, different, but it's the same thing. Why is this happening within the span of just a chapter? Because obviously the disciples didn't get it the first time. So God says, I have to do it again. See, in John 6, in John 6, when Jesus says the feeding of 5,000, it comes right out and says that he was doing this to test them. In Matthew 16, in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, he brings up the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 and says, did you guys not realize this was a test? I'm trying to test you to make sure you get it. Because just one chapter earlier, they just fed 10 to 15,000 people. And we made the comment at the end that there was 12 baskets left over. One for every disbelieving disciple. Now, one chapter later, hey, how are we going to feed the 4,000? I have no idea. Do you not just remember we fed the 5,000? Jesus is saying, guys, you didn't pass the test. You didn't get it. So i got to do the test one more time. Same thing happens in life. If you don't pass the test, if you don't get it, guess what the Lord's going to do? 
He's going to bring it back one more time to say, I want you to get it. What does that look like? Well, I can tell you what it sounds like. Because I heard you say it. I've heard me say it. Phrases like this. Why is it that every job I have, I always have to work with somebody who does this? Why is it that my spouse always does this? I hate it when they do that. They do it all the time. <coughs> Why is it that every church I've ever gone to, there's this one person who does this, and it always annoys me and bothers me? What is that showing? There's a test that has not been passed yet. So God is going to keep bringing in that co-worker who keeps doing that. Because you haven't passed the test yet. You haven't learned how to unconditionally love your spouse yet, so it's going to keep annoying you. You haven't learned that we're all sinners in need of grace and mercy and works in progress, so when you look at the church, you're going to get annoyed by that. And what happens is, as life goes on, and you get older and more decades under your belt, it's going to be phrases like this. My whole life, I've always had to deal with this. It's always bothered me. It sounds like the Lord has been trying to help you pass that test for a really long time. Is this going to keep bringing the test in again and again and again? Why? Because he loves you. He wants you to be everything you can be in the Lord. So if you find yourself constantly being tripped up by the same things, maybe the Lord is trying to tell you, you're not as strong in that area as you think. So therefore the test has to keep coming. Disciples, do you not remember we just fed 5,000 men? Do not remember that. So when you look at 4,000, that should even be easier. No. They didn't pass the test. So what happens is, it has to keep coming again and again and again. I had something like this recently on a very much smaller scale. So with us having, you know, seven kids, it was time for the weeks for everybody to go to the dentist. Well, with seven kids, you can't get one dentist appointment at one time. Took two one day, took three another day, took two another day. I hate going to the dentist. God love you if there's a dentist here. God loves you, but I don't like it. But it's, it's, it's tough. So I, I would take them, and you know, you got to go back. you got to listen to the report, what the dentist says. And I just, I don't like it. It makes me nervous. It makes me worked up. So I went the first time, took two. I worked up. Okay, got through it. Peace of God surpasses all understanding. Amen. Okay, and i got to go back again in just a couple of days. I spent eight days with the dentist three times. Spend a total of two, four, six, like nine hours. It's just like, I'm, I'm done with this. So, you know, I, I can't do this. After the first time, I can't do this anymore. It doesn't work. Dawn, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to take this. Dawn said no. She's not submissive. Praise for that. And so, <laughs> so I took them. Just for the record, she, she was she was going. So you go again. The second time, I can't do this. And then this sounds really silly, but so I'm doing. I got my phone out. I'm just reading scriptures. I'm going to get the dentist. You know, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. John 14, 27. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. And I'm just reading scriptures and getting through it. So I got through the second one. I got to do it one more time. And it's just got to keep on taking the test. You've heard me say many times I've heard before that I feel that in your life, God will always bring one unlovable person into your life. To teach you to love unlovable people. To teach you to have unconditional love towards somebody. I was just reading Luke 6 this morning about how God says, it's easy for you to love the people that are nice to you. It's easy for you to love the people that love you back. But can you love the people that don't? It's hard. I love how it says right here. It says, for he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. 
I'm glad God's kind to us. I'm not. I love them. And it's a test that has to keep on happening. I firmly believe this. Once you learn how to love that unlovable person, God's going to bring you another unlovable person and say, I want you to keep learning. I want you to keep growing. It's a test. John 6. Guys, this is a test. How are we going to feed the 5,000? Okay, you didn't pass. Now we're going to feed the 4,000. All right, still not getting it. Next chapter, I'm going to remind you again on how we fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 because you guys aren't really getting this. So if there's something in your life that you feel like you just constantly keep repeating, let me ask you, is it a test that the Lord is giving you that you're really not passing? What test do you keep taking again and again and again? Maybe you need to stop, step back and say, Lord, what am I not learning from this? Lord, what am I not seeing from this? How am I not becoming more like you through this? Now let's build on this a little bit. Can you go with me to 1 Peter 1? 1 Peter 1. As you're going through tests, it can become very easy to become discouraged, to lose focus. Let me share a couple of thoughts with you. First one, the Psalms tell us this, that God is good and does good. So whatever test you're going through, and it seems very, very difficult, the Bible makes it clear God is good and does good, so don't forget that. Remember also Romans 8.28, that in all things God works for the good. So God is saying, this test in your life is actually working for good. As you're going to 1 Peter 1, James 1 tells us this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, there's a word, that the testing of your faith produces patience. James 1 says that when you go through difficult times, that testing makes you stronger in the Lord. 1 Peter has a great passage on this. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a real big flowing statement. That's great. I love this. I'm blessed by having Jesus Christ. He has given me mercy and grace. I have salvation through him alone. He has chosen me. This is wonderful. But then in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Wow. Verse 7, The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is, there's our word, tested, by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Let's stop right there. Testing is a time of rejoicing. Why? Because it's a time of rejoicing because I'm going to come out of this test deeper, stronger, in my walk in relationship with the Lord. So therefore, I rejoice in that. When this test is over, I will be more like Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, it's difficult to think about that in the middle of the test. Don and I have been going through something here recently. We really just been praying about what the Lord's perfect will is for. And the verse we keep going back to is out of Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 2, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Okay, Lord, we want to fight the good fight. We want to finish the race. We don't want to jump off the track early. We don't want to take the first exit ramp. I want to finish the race. I want to keep the faith. And hear me out when I say this. I want to finish the race. Because I want to see what the reward is at the end of the race. When I say reward, it's not a reward like God gives us a prize. If you, if you don't misunderstand biblical rewards, 
Lord, how is my family going to grow from this? How am I going to grow from this? How is dog going to grow from this? How is our marriage going to grow? And when we get done with this race and we look back, wow, Lord, the reward is how, look how much deeper we've gone in you and you've trained us and grown us. The problem is if you're going through a difficult time and you're in the race like that, some of us just want the first exit ramp. You never get the reward. You never see the why of, of, Lord, why did you have me go through this to go deeper? And we go through these trials and tribulations, nothing comes out of it. We say, oh, what was the point? Finish the race. See what the point is. So I rejoice in what God's going to do. Next one, verse 6. Though now for a little while, every trial you face is just a little while. It really is. You've had moments at work, at home, whatever. It was the biggest deal in the world. And the next thing you know, one hour later, it was nothing at all. Now, some of you may say at this point, now, James, I got you on this one. I've been going through things that are years, now decades long, so it's not a little while. I have health issues. I have problems that I'm going to deal with until the day of my death. That's not a little while. And I would stop and say, in the whole scheme of eternity, it is a little while. You've got to think of everything through eternity. Quit thinking of life through just here and now. Look through through the lens of eternity. Everything we face is only for a little while. Next phrase, if need be. Some of us need to go through tests. Lord, I need to be more like you. Refine me. Make me more like you. Chip away the things that need to be chipped away. It's not fun. Hence the next one. You have been grieved. You have been distressed by various trials. It is difficult. But God says it's working. What's working? Verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, and be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This time of testing reveals my true faith. It reveals the genuineness of my walk with Christ. If you want to know how strong you are in your walk with the Lord, go through a time of testing and trial, and I will reveal it. It's not easy, it's not fun. But the times of testing are what takes us deeper in Him grows us to be more like him. And if you're constantly facing the same thing again and again in life, and you make those statements of why do I always have to deal with this? Why do I always have to work with somebody that why does this always happen to me? Maybe take a step back and say, boy, is this the time of testing that I'm not really seeing? Is this the time of testing that you're trying to work through? Okay, well what does it mean to have the genuineness of your faith be tested? Let's finish with this. You guys know the list of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Last week in Matthew 15, we talked about the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and what Jesus mentioned in Matthew 15 about the evilness that can come out of our heart when we compare it. Well, you want to know what areas we need to be tested in? A lot of it is the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of it is the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to finish with this. As we go through these different fruits, I want you to stop and ask yourself, am I being tested in this fruit because I'm not really being a living example of it? So first one, love. Agape love, God-given love, that you look at people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, an unconditional love, that's a hard one. As we mentioned earlier, it's hard to love the unlovables. It's hard to have unconditional love towards people. I heard a great teaching recently where the guy said, listen, it's easy to minister to somebody when you're only going to see them for about an hour. It's easy to minister to maybe people at church that you're only going to see maybe a day or two a week for a couple hours. But when you have to minister to someone that maybe you work with hours every day, or even deeper, you live with every day, every moment of the day, you really start to understand what unconditional love is. We can fake it for an hour. We can fake it for a couple hours. And maybe you even can fake it at work five days a week, eight, nine, ten hours a day. But 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no, we can't fake it. And that's when we really start to realize what unconditional love is. 
So how's the testing and love going? What about the next one? Joy. I've seen believers that have a heart for Jesus. They understand heaven and hell. They understand eternity. They understand God's word. But where's their joy? The most grumpled, disgruntled Christians you've ever seen. So you talk to them about joy. Well, what do I have to be joyful about? Obviously, there's a test going on. Because when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the joy that gives you strength. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. If I have no strength in life, it's probably because I don't have a lot of joy in the circumstances I have. Remember, our joy is based on Jesus and not the situation. You keep your eyes on the Savior, not the situation. So maybe it's a testing of joy. Do you have joy in life? Are you allowing what you're going through right now to bring you down? Which takes us to the next one, peace. The Bible says there's a peace that surpasses all understanding. You can't figure it out. It surpasses all understanding. So therefore, I can have a peace no matter what's going on. And, and I don't know what it is for you. For everybody, it's different. It may seem really big. It may seem really little. For me, it was peace of I'm going to go to the dentist three times in eight days. Lord, you're going to give me peace. <sighs> Next one. Patience. Patience is tough. I heard somebody say one time, never pray for patience. Because the only way you can really get Patience is by going through things that test your patience. Now the problem is patience is such a nice word. Patience. Mine says in New King James, long suffering. Hey, just think about that word for a second. Long suffering. One more time. Long suffering. That doesn't sound as much fun as patience, does it? Because long suffering is what? You are suffering. For a long time. It's difficult. And God says, can you have patience? Can you suffer for a long time knowing that you're representing me and how you act and respond to people? It's amazing how we treat patience as some type of genetic trait. Well, my mom and dad never had patience, so I don't have much patience. You do not inherit patience. It's a choice you make. Well, I've never had a good job with patience, but it sounds like it's a test you've been dealing with since you were two years old. Long suffering. Next one, kindness. Once again, where is, have we as believers lost the track of just kindness? The Bible says in Ephesians 4 32 that Jesus Christ was kind to us. Sometimes I see people proclaim Christ, they're just some of the rudest people you've ever been walking. Kindness. Next one, goodness, faithfulness, goodness, just doing the right thing, faithfulness, having that faithful walk with Jesus Christ. Gentleness, some translations are meekness. Gentleness, you're not the one yelling, you're not the one screaming, you're not the one falling off the handle. You're not the one that people walk up to you timidly and say, God, i got to talk to him today, I sure hope he's in a good mood. How is that representing Jesus Christ? Jesus was so unintimidating that little kids when they come up and saw his lap. I've been coming to this church for 23 years. I've been the pastor here since 2000, so for 16 years. Some of your dear little kids still won't shake my hand. I'm not intimidated, you don't think I am. But little kids that don't grab right up Jesus. A gentleness, a meekness. And last one, self-control. I mentioned this point last week that I just repeated it. Someone comes up to me and says, I can't control myself or I can't help myself. I very lovingly interrupt them at that moment and say, yes, you can. This is the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. You, you, you can. You may choose not to, but you can't control yourself. And so what you see here is if these are the things that keep happening in your life, 
Why am I always dealing with unlovable people? Because maybe you need to be tested in love. Why is it I can never find joy in life? My life is awful and miserable. Well, then you're being tested in joy. Why is it that I'm always struggling with this or that? Look and see what the test is. The test is there according to 1 Peter because God loves you and he wants to take you deeper and he wants to test your faith to make sure it's genuine. And the only way you can tell, the only way you can tell how genuine and strong your faith is is to go through the time of testing for it to be revealed. Disciples, you may get the 5,000, so I have to do it now with 4,000 to make sure you get it. Same thing happens to us today. I'm not getting this, Lord. Right, I know, so I'm going to keep giving you the test again in a little bit different way, a little bit different detail, a little bit different manner. Just reveal. Where's your faith at? Now, let's pray this into our lives here. Worship team, you come forward. Lord, we want to do what your word says. We want to count it all joy when we fall into various trials and tribulations. Lord, we want those fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Lord, we want to pass the test. We want to be genuine and real with you. Whoever is here this morning and they're constantly struggling with this, Lord, show them that you can help them study for that test. That we can be like you and all the same do. In the name of Jesus, help us to invite some witnesses for you. We want to serve you. Your word says we were created, we are your workmanship, created for good works. We want to get out there to do that. Not legalistically, not because we have to. We love you, thank you.